All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Thank you guys all for coming out to our second Rise Night of the semester. We will have uh, food, as always, right after the talk, and then we'll do some short discussion afterwards. So we'll go ahead and start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Into your presence we come, God of grace and peace, who was and is and ever shall be the eternal one. Into fellowship we come, bound together in the love that died and rose again for us, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So if you guys remember, our uh, topic for this semester, possibly the whole year, is just incarnation. And uh, last time we had Father Zars come. And he really talked about basically that the incarnation was our way of reconnecting with God and being able to physically connect with him again. And so this time we have brought Patrick here down from KU and he will give a nice talk to you guys. So give it up for Patrick. Well, at least it's not like the, you know, father after mass with like, oh gosh, these parishioners, they're awful. <laughs> and then like, oh, my mic's on. <laughs> uh, you guys are all way too young for this. I'm way too young for this, but the lights make me feel like, um, you know, famously when Nixon debated Kennedy and he was on television, uh, or a few people have learned enough history to know that he didn't realize how hot the lights were when he was being televised, and so like the makeup was just like running down his face. It was the first televised presidential debate. And it's between like one guy who's like calm and composed, another guy who's just like sweating and streaking makeup. Um, so you'll forgive me for odd moments of just being like a deer in the headlights. I'm going to go ahead and, and start the clock. Um, so the incarnation is very dear to me. Um, when I came back into the church in, uh, in 2003, I was in Rome, and we had a Greek class with this lovely old Jesuit priest, which was right outside Sancta Maria Maggiore, which is one of the four major basilicas in Rome. And if you ever get a chance to go there, you go down uh, underneath, and there is the remains of the manger in which our Lord was born. And there are the remains of St. Jerome there as well. And St. Jerome was my patron saint. St. Jerome is my confirmation saint. Um, the day I picked St. Jerome, I, I ran into now Bishop Conley, and he's like, uh, I have big news. Uh, I booked this really cool church for the confirmations. It's going to be St. Jerome's. And I was like, excellent. I have a great confirmation saint. All of it's sort of focusing together. So for me, for years, the beginning of coming back into Christianity was the incarnation. So that's that. So the official talk, as I've written it out, with lots of digressions, as I do. So uh, before we begin, I want to thank Father Blaha for inviting me down uh, to speak. I want to thank all of you, uh, especially some of you who I will nod to, for being very nice to me when I first came in here and directed me uh, to where to go. Um, while much of tonight's talk uh, will discuss books and theories of education and theology, um, I want to start here with sort of a short apology. Um, I understand a large percentage of the students here at ESU are preparing for careers in education. Um, just because of the time constraints of this format, um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of the practical examples of here's how this theory lines up with what I've experienced as an educator. Here's how this other theory lines up with that one time that student clogged the toilet and then I was in between classes and I was using a plunger and thinking about what does this mean? <laughs> to be a teacher, 
Um, so I'm not going to give you a lot of those. Uh, we're going to dispense with them, as humorous as they are. Um, I do want to give a bit of an apology, though, for, for two reasons. Um, first, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ has said that on the last day, we shall be held accountable for every word we have uttered. Uh, something St. Joseph uh, doesn't really have much to fear about because you read scripture, just big old blank. My wife got these lovely Father's Day socks for me of St. Joseph. There's a company called Sock Religious. On the bottom of the socks, they always have a quote from the saint. But the St. Joseph socks I have just have a quote, like quotation marks, and then nothing. Right? So St. Joseph doesn't really have to worry about that when Jesus comes in the last day and is like, all right, let's discuss all the things you said. Nothing, right? But as a teacher, your job day in, day out is to talk. And there's a lot of things you're going to be held accountable. A lot of things I'm, as older, a lot of things I'm already afraid of being held accountable for. Um, so the composition of any talk must give us pause to, to fear, to, to work out in trembling our own salvation, because everything is at stake when I open my mouth. Second, and I always hold this as the standard for why I should talk at all, is that uh, a great uh, love of mine is the English poet W.H. Auden. And the W.H. Auden once said that no conversation was worth having if it wasn't shop talk. Do you guys know what I mean when I say shop talk? Like, who, has anyone worked at like a summer camp? No one's worked a summer camp? Well, okay, oh, a few people like begrudgingly, like, yeah, I did that. Like, do you ever, like, okay, so you see, like, the assumption is that most other people haven't worked a summer camp. But when you run to other people who were working camp with you, right, or who work summer camps, what's that conversation go like? Yeah, how's camp going? And then you just launch into it, right? There's something that, that's there, right? The same way you guys have conversations. Shop talk is conversations about what is really being done and who you really are. Right? So if you're in class, the weather for students, by the way, students are better than most adults. Most adults, like we talk about just weather, unless you're from Kansas, and in which case, yeah, weather affects the farming, and then it is shop talk. But I'm from New Jersey, and so it wasn't shop talk. It's just drivel that we're going to be held accountable for on the last day. But what students' versions of the weather? Just, oh, man, I got a really huge test today. Man, pop quiz. It's just like I was out there, and snowstorm came just like that, wasn't expecting it, right? So we always talk about our classes, the papers, like we speak about it as if it's impersonal phenomenon that affects all of us, right? Um, and don't worry, like as students, you're going to be on the other side of it, right? And the other side of it is this, the conversation goes like this. You hand back the paper, A+, plus. you know, the student runs back to their friend, oh man, I got an A+, plus, right? And then if I give you, say, C-, minus. D and F. Student turns to their friend and says, ah, oh, he gave me, right? Then there's the difference in language there. I got versus he gave me, right? It's a, it's a very important distinction there. Okay, so that's, that's what shop talk is. So technically, all of this is shop talk, even though it may not seem that way to you. Um, what I mean is that these are the reflections on what it means to be a Catholic student and a Catholic teacher. Um, no matter what grade level of education you are interested in, I have some experience. Um, as a graduate student, I taught middle school Latin for a number of years. I was the chair of a high school Latin program for a number of years. I taught Latin, Greek, history, literature at the university level. Um, I teach today as a homeschooling parent everything to third and first and second and kindergarten and pre-K. 
all the stuff. And by the way, homeschooling is really great in the younger years because you can't really screw them up that much, right? You know, like pre-K, like, you know, like Timmy didn't learn how to tie his shoes right. <laughs> it's just bad marks for the year. Um, bar's really low. So I've been doing education for 13 years. I've been a practicing Catholic for 15 years. So I have some experience. And what this is is kind of reflections on the negotiation between those two parts of my person, okay? But I'm going to sort of skip the personal now, and we're going to launch into the official, okay? So what I'm talking about are Aristotle's definitions of man. So this inc the series that you have focuses on incarnation, um, the word becoming flesh. Um, and what do we mean by the word becoming flesh? Because Christ did not become a raccoon. He did not become a caribou. He did not become a platypus, right? He didn't become anything else that you could name of that is the word becoming flesh, right? When we say the word became flesh, he became man, right? And so in some sense, to understand man is not only to understand our nature, but now through the incarnation to understand and to study man is also to understand part of or one of the two natures of the second person of the Trinity. So as the church teaches in becoming man, Christ had two natures. But as we know from Genesis, even this human nature is an image and likeness of the divine. All right, so there are many ways to argue and interpret what is human nature. And there's, you know, about 3,000 years of human philosophy that have argued one way or another what is human nature. I'm just going to start here with the, the time constraint and say, look, sorry, Thomas Aquinas had it. Sorry, friends, uh, scholastic philosophy had it, the Catholic Church had it. And they, in large part, drew from a fellow in ancient Greece called Aristotle. Who's heard of Aristotle? Man, either you guys are really, really smart, or everyone here really knows how to fake it till they make it. <laughs> uh, so Aristotle has three definitions of man. Um, and I would argue that in my life as a teacher, as an educator, as a friend, as a Catholic, I've only encountered people who are aware of two of the three definitions. The first definition is rational animal. And this has formed the core of Catholic and scholastic thought about the human person for the last 2,000 years. The definition of man as a rational animal comes from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where he says that man is an animal which has logos. Um, and for those of you who've been on like enough Catholic retreats, because like usually on Catholic retreats you have people who do like MAs in catechesis, like uh, MAs in theology and pastoral care, just like where they get like they don't actually know Greek or anything like that, but they get just like a smattering of it, so they can throw out these words and then they use them. So you probably have heard the word logos before. Who's heard the word logos before? A lot of yeah, you guys are all liars. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so logos, right? And where have you heard the context of logos? So we're, uh, you know, as an animal, Aristotle says we have logos. What, what have you heard of logos? What is it to you? Logic? Reasoning? Yeah, knowledge, not so much. It allows us to, it's, sorry, I'm going to like, okay. I'm going to like pull the whole like, you know, like lots and lots of years of Greek card and say no. I'm just going to ask you to trust me on that one. <laughs> Logic is, uh, logos is how we arrive at knowledge. It's one of the means to arrive at knowledge, but it's not knowledge itself. So, and it's also the word that's used in the very beginning of John's gospel. 
for Christ himself. He is the Logos, anarche and ho Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, was the Word. Right? Oh, sorry, I was given the Greek. It's okay. It's fine. So in the beginning was the Word, right? And what do we mean by that as Word, right? Word is reason, and Christ is Logos. And that means our language capacity. That means our rational capacity. So God is spirit. So unlike the other animals who have a soul, sorry, everyone who thinks they're going to get like their puppy, their kitten, their pony when you get to heaven, uh, animals don't have that kind of soul. We have a soul, but our soul is a soul spirit. And so because of that rational faculty of the soul, it's immortal, right? Unlike uh, whiskers or wrecks. Sorry, I just let that one sink in. You know what? When I was a first-year graduate student, I'd volunteered at CCD, and I threw that out to a group of fifth graders. Oh. <laughs> I was like, uh, and the, the director of religious ed like pulled me into her office after the first week, and she's like, "We got to talk about some ground rules for how we do this." Uh, um, so now I'm going to leave all that aside. Uh, I do want to give you like one short reflection on man as rational animal, and then we're going to move on. So man as rational animal means that we possess logos, but logos himself is the divine, right? So that's one way in which we share in God's image and likeness. Um, and if you go, you can, I don't think there actually, no, there is. If you go online, there's a translation of um, Thomas Aquinas' commentary to the Gospel of John. And I think if you have a Bible study, um, even if you're in a focus Bible study, don't, is there a focus missionaries here? Yeah, okay. When you guys are like done and you have a group who's like done crux for like the fourth time and you need to do something different, go to Thomas Aquinas. So Thomas Aquinas, Gospel of John, pull up his commentary and do a Bible study with the Gospel of John with Thomas Aquinas and it'll blow your mind. But when we say Logos is God, right, he's more Logos than we possess, right, in some way, right? So all of it is then an imitation. All right. Moving on from that, second, uh, man is a political animal. And we get this, of course, from Aristotle's politics. Where else would he put that definition but in his politics? So what Aristotle means by man is a political animal has nothing uh, like what we would conceive of it today in the United States. Um, Aristotle does not mean that we naturally fall into two political parties. right? Aristotle doesn't mean that we have something ingrained in our nature where we want to put out dank memes on Facebook, owning Republicans or owning Democrats, right? It has nothing to do with us as political animal. Us as political animal means that is centered in the polis, right? The polis is a, a smaller community. To operate in a scale of 370, 380, however many millions of people we have in the United States is not a community that you can really understand and wrap your mind around. What he says is that we're meant to operate in a community of hundreds of thousands, right? Of, or sorry, hundreds of thousands and of a family, right? And not just to be an individual and the state. We're meant for a community in some way. And that's why Catholics get it, where a lot of our Protestant brethren have kind of lost that sense, right? That salvation is not something worked out individually, right? Salvation is something that is corporate. So it is a political revolutionary act. If you go read the early church fathers, the incarnation is always conceived of as some sort of counterinsurgency inside a besieged city or an occupied city, right? And so it, it can be conceived as a political term there. Okay, 
So what I want to talk about here before we move on is how you can better live up to that expectation and your nature as a political animal. So um, our nation is not a city. We no longer belong to our cities, right? We move, to, we move from town to town and village to village all the time, right? And so we've lost that sense of belonging to a community for the good and the bad that it has. Um, but when you think about it, for centuries, for millennia, the human person lived in a large nexus, a social net of intermediary communities. There was not just your Bible study. There's not just your nuclear family. There was a sporting club, your drinking club. Without Netflix, you would actually meet and talk to people, right? Um, without your Bluetooth speakers, when you go for a hike or you go for a walk or you go for a run, so often when I'm on campus and I see students, right, the headphones are a way of avoiding that initial awkwardness of actually having to meet and talk to someone, right? The, the opportunity for community has been cut off. Even if you disengage yourself and prepare yourself to meet others and to be part of community, there's still the, hey, can you take it off moment, right? So when you don't have that, when you don't have Netflix, people meet they meet on the porch. They meet around the hearth fire. You tell stories. So you didn't have temporary colleagues. And this is the way work structure is also focused as well. And part of your community is who you work with. If these are just people that you're working side by side with for 20 years before you collect your pension, what a sad life you're going to live, right? The people that you used to work with, we used to form things called guilds, apprentices, right? You'd meet and you'd work with them. You'd celebrate with them. You'd sit with them at mass. You'd build things together for the church. You'd build things together for the community. All of it not necessarily tied to one single group of friends. We've all sort of been in that situation where we've been burned by, you know, you put all your eggs in the, okay, I'm going to be friends with Chris Basket. And then, you know, Chris gets a girlfriend, and then all of a sudden he doesn't return my call. Actually, no, no, I'm going to call him Justin because this is an actual real story and he's not here. So, so I was in Rome when I was converting. And this actually was a moment of conversion. So God wrought good out of it. I was like all in with my BFF Justin. He and I saw all the sites. We drank in all the pubs. And this girl, who now is my wife, started dating my friend Justin. And I didn't see Justin anymore. And I was just gone. And I was like all by myself in the city, and I was like, what am I going to do? I'll find God. <laughs> God won't leave me like Justin did. <laughs> no, but seriously, you need more than just one friend. You need more than just one community of friends. You need more than just, as much as, you know, as much as I see good in your, your focused Bible study friendships, you need more than that. Because where are you going to bring other people into it, right? How's that going to grow, right? If it's just a closed circle, a closed loop, a very sad life. But finally, he gets to the point halfway through. Because there's one definition of the human person that we don't talk about. So we're a rational animal, we're a political animal. And then the other definition is that we're a mimetic animal. We're the most mimetic animal. That's a really strange term, and who knows what the heck that means. Does anyone know what the word mimesis is? Mimetic? Come on, you, name it. What's mimesis? Imitation, right? So if I, you get the word mime, right, from this as well. So if something is mimetic, it's imitative, right? And so of all the animals, we're the most imitative, right? So if I go like this, and you, 
Okay, just keep that in mind, right? Two claps. Man, you guys are not alive. <laughs> Two and then four. Okay, put that in the back of your head. Because I'm going to prove to you that you are the most mimetic animal on this earth. You can go up to dolphins, you can go to sharks, you can go to you know, snails, and you can just be like, I'm more mimetic than you. So mimesis is the means by which we educate, right? Imitation is the means by which we educate, right? If I repeat something and then you repeat it back, that's how we do it, right? If I show my child how to tie their shoes, right, I have to perform it, and then their imitation of what I did becomes a way through which they learn. What mimesis accomplishes is the same and different. What do I mean by that? Um, that is... If I gave you a recording of Robert Frost reciting, whose woods these are, I think I know, his house is in the village though, that's Robert Frost saying his own poem, right? And yet through mimesis, through imitation, I can affect to be Robert Frost. I can recite that poem. I can empty myself and become Robert Frost for a moment. And yet at the same time, there would never be a moment where you would think, oh my gosh, Robert Frost is here. He's back from the dead. Right? And yet his words, his style, his language would all be living through me. And yet I would still be here. And I would still be me, but I wouldn't be me. Does that seem like anything in the Christian life to you? You just walked out of it. The mass, right? Do this in memory of me. Right? The very center core of the mass is all these thousands, hundreds, millions of priests for the centuries, day in and day out, playing Jesus Christ. Right? It's, a, it's mimetic, but the mimesis is fundamental to our nature, and it's so fundamental that it can affect change in the world. Right? So when you imitate someone, you learn through them. Right, if I wanted to teach a, a, a chimpanzee how to clap the way I taught you guys how to clap, as dull as you guys were about the whole thing, that was really lame, by the way. <laughs> Trust me, I mean, what would end up happening, though, is I would go to San Diego, I'd be part of the zoo, I have to have like, a couple of PhDs to teach the chimps these things, and then it would take me months and years, and then you'd still get in, and like, this is day 453 of the recording with Zuzu, the orangutan, we're going to teach her to clap again, right? And, and it may or may not work, right? And then you get this editing of the video to, to look, they're mimetic, but not the same way we are. There's something strange about the way that we imitate, just naturally. Like I had a roommate uh, in college who was from Texas, and he was from East Texas, a lot of y'all and mams and sirs and things like that. By the end of the year, I started doing some of the Texan, East Texas draw myself. And he'd be like, you making fun of me? And I'd be like, no, no, I'm not. This is just part of me living with you, right? Part of our ability to be political animals is our mimesis, our ability to imitate each other. Okay, so when we can imitate, we imitate in two ways. We can imitate physically, such as the clapping, but we can also imitate spiritually or intellectually, right? So memorizing a poem, learning facts, all these sorts of things. And that mimesis is something fundamental to the human mind and how it operates. So um, if you just take a second and close your eyes, um, 
think about a, a vase of flowers, right? So your ability to, to visualize that vase of flowers is itself your mind's natural process of mimesis. It takes in sensory data and then it projects an image to you, right, of something you've experienced. That vase that's in your mind is not the vase that you encountered, right? So you can think of a particular person, like you can close your eyes and think of a friend, right? And you can see the friend. Sometimes if you haven't had the courage to tell them to take more frequent showers, you can smell the friend in your mind, <laughs> right? And so that's a mimetic act, right? On a physical level, the senses then are operate in our mind through mimesis, but also our imagination does as well. And so I can visualize, you know, a, uh, a rainbow unicorn jumping over a gold mountain while he's crying Skittles, right? And all of these things I'm able to conjure up the image of through mimesis because the imagination functions through that, right? It's able to take things that are known and imitate and improvise off of them. And so through the imaginative act, almost all of our higher rational functions are able to operate. And through that as well, this is the amazing thing, the way that which we are like God, right, is that as Aristotle says, that ability for your mind to conceive of anything and everything and anywhere and any time makes you really present in a really real way to anything that you can see, conceive, right? It's the old joke about the angels on the, you know, the medievals, right? Where they spend all that time arguing about how many angels you can fit on the, the head of a pin, right? Now today we talk about that as if it was like something that scholastic philosophers actually spent time thinking about. But it's a very quick answer to that one. An infinite number of angels can do that. And an infinite amount of you can be present to it through your mind, right? I can be present to the whole of the universe through my mind in a really real way, through the capacity for us to imitate. So what does that mean? Um, that imitation is uh, part of Christ, right? So when he becomes incarnate, right, he imitates and takes on humanity. But then in the same way, it works in reverse, right? Because everything is kind of retroactive. The incarnation is like this one moment that's at the center of time. There's a reason why we talk about time as BC and AD, right? And it's not centered on the, the and as, as important as it is, right? Fundamentally important. Without the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, there's no reason for us to be here. And yet the incarnation is equally as well in there. And so all of time can be kind of seen as either leading up to or leading away from or as from the incarnation. And so the incarnation, if you look at old icons of Adam, right, of the creation of man, um, oftentimes you don't have that sort of Michelangelo, like uh, God the Father is the, the old man with the big drapes, you know, the pointing, like, we all seen that in Sistine Chapel, yeah? No, instead you look at old icons and it's Jesus Christ looking like man, creating Adam who looks like Jesus Christ. Kind of weird, um, but I encourage you to kind of like Google, like icons, images, Jesus Christ, Adam, see what you turn up with. But it's, it's a really cool thing. So Christ then imitates. And in imitation, then he becomes part of us and we become part of him, right? That's the old saying that the church fathers had, which is that uh, by God becoming man, or God became man so that man might become God's. Okay? 
All right, so I want to talk about this, reflecting on it as the incarnation and its mimetic act of becoming man, right? God playing man, but he isn't just play man. He really is man, because that's what mimesis does. It's not just a, a play. It's you, you, you actually learn, and you're educated through it. I want to talk about that in the Trinity. So I want to walk you through that. Um, so through Revelation, we are told that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Our image and likeness is less to do with accidents, for example, that we have two eyes, that we are either male or female, that we are found within a certain height or in a certain field of colors, etc. Though once again, the retroactive effects of the incarnation do mean that even on an accidental level, our image and likeness to God can be found in the second person of Jesus Christ. So that is, when I physically look at you and see you, right, in some ways then, the accidents of you, right, um, that is the fact that you're not blue, uh, the fact that you're not 20 feet tall, Right? All these sorts of things. The field of possibilities of the accidents of the human person are a reflection of the second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ. But the real image and likeness, well, okay, not the real. That, is, that one's real too. But the deeper, the one that's, that's closer to God, who in the beginning was spirit, is the part of us that is spirit. And so let's think about the Trinity here for a second as mimesis. Right? So you have the Father, and the Father gives all to the Son, right? And then the Son, in turn, gives it all back to the Father, right? And so there's a sort of, there used to be these lovely illustrations of God, uh, God in the center, and then Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in between it, each of them, like, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Right? Have we seen some images like that? Or you understand this, right? Hopefully. But it's the mimetic act of the, the Father and the Son that then produces this new inspiration, right? this spiration, the Holy Spirit. Right? So in the Trinity then, at the very core of it, it couldn't exist without mimesis. Right? The Trinity is not a political act. Right? It's not a rational act. It's what it is. The, the logos is there. But the life of the Trinity, the relations between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all mimetic. Right? And that's part of what you are. Right? So when you imitate your father, when you imitate your mother, when you imitate your uncle, your friends, all that, right? That's part of you entering into the mystery of the Trinitarian life. And that's where it comes back to education, right? Education is that. And I want to talk about the best student and the best teacher as the example of how that Trinity becomes reality with us. And that's through Mary. And it's her feast day today, so it's appropriate I end with her. So all of this is well and good, but how do we put this idea of mimesis uh, that's in human nature into action. Um, the answer is still mimesis, right? You can't just like, okay, I've learned hypothetically the idea of mimesis, and so now I'm going to put it into action. You put it into action by imitating, right? So we identify someone who lived out this idea, and we imitate them to the fullest extent that we can. So you've already, we've already talked about Jesus a little and his mimesis, and especially in the life of the Trinity. But if we're to discuss the greatest of humans who didn't also happen to be God, that was a woman, and her name was Mary. So I want to ask you to close your eyes again. 
and I want you to represent to yourself an image of the Annunciation. So you've probably seen these a number of times. My favorite is this. Uh, man, I got to hurry up here. That was 30 minutes. Um, my favorite is this uh, this painting by the Quattrocento Italian painter Fra Angelico. Um, and the angel Gabriel is in this soft red garment. His wings are dappled, his arms are crossed, and he's kneeling before the Blessed Virgin. And she sits under a colonnade facing a garden. Um, can any of you, in any of the images that you might have, the Annunciation, can you, in the times that you've looked at it, contemplated that picture, can you tell me what's on her lap? You don't have to keep your eyes closed right now if you don't want to. What's on her lap? Any image of, of the Annunciation? Scripture. Scripture. Yeah, she always has a book of Scripture on her lap. Right? It's a book. Not just any book. The Scriptures. So I want that to sink in. Right? The moment of the Incarnation is an educational moment. Right? So Mary's not out there on the spindle and distaff weaving. Right? Mary's not building a ship. Mary's not doing any of the other millions of things that the human being can do. The moment of incarnation is the same moment I was talking to you about with me reciting Robert Frost, right? That mimetic act of emptying myself and putting someone else's words into me and then learning through that, the education that comes through the mimesis. So when you read, when you really read, that is, what I mean is you're paying attention, right? You're really, truly activated to the present moment, right? In the way that God is present in the present, right? Not in the sort of like hurly-burly of the, the scrolling, right? But really present, right? You empty yourself and someone, usually someone dead, or at least someone separated in time and space, that someone comes into your life, that person through you takes flesh, and through your voluntary act of reading your textbook, of doing your physics homework, of just reviewing the lesson notes that you took of someone else, right? That voluntary act of yielding your time, your voice, your mind, incarnates a word. And so what we have as the central act of salvation history is someone mimetically that is what they would do. They, they would recite scripture. And so she's the perfect reader in the perfect moment, in the perfect time. And so for an instant, it became so really real, the mimesis, that it generated the incarnation. Right? And it comes in as an educative act. So you've all perhaps experienced this when you really and truly studied right, real reading. Concentrating, re concentrated reading, like prayer, requires an act of the will that moves the intellect and requires the cooperation of the body. Right? And so if you ask me right now, what would I rather do? Would I rather do 100 push-ups? Or would I rather learn these 100 words in Spanish that I've never seen before? Um, what would probably be easier? 100 push-ups. Right? Real concentrated action of the mind is where our real calling is too. And yet it's the most difficult thing for us because we don't train ourselves for it. So I want to return to Mary. Without the distractions and bad habits of original sin or concupiscence, Mary was the perfect reader, and what she read was the word of God. When she read, the intellectual act of conception was so perfect and in balance with the whole of her being 
that she was open to the conception of the word physically as well as spiritually. And so these are the last things, and then we can eat. So education comes from the Latin words uh, meaning to lead and to out. So um, you know, Father Blaha talked about sort of moving these as forma formative nights. Um, but what I hope is that this has not only been formative, but educative, right? that it liberated you in some way. Um, because education is called liberal, like liberty, because it refers to freedom. The mystery of the incarnation is an educational mystery. Salvation is a freeing act. The early, as, um, a lot of our Protestant friends like to say that they're convicted, right? Um, well, we're convicted in a way in which we're freed, right? Um, the early church fathers liked to see the world before the incarnation as a besieged city. The English poet John Donne kept this analogy in his Holy Sonnet 14 when he said, I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy and me, me should defend. But is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. In the incarnation, Christ did not recapture the world from Satan with a host of angels and blaring trumpets. That's going to come at the end. But in the incarnation, he disguised himself as one of us, a mimetic act, right? At the beginning, uh, as way to entering into the besieged city, the mass is our course in counterinsurgency. Right? I want to say that again. The mass is our course in counterinsurgency. We live in a besieged city, right? And yet every time is an educative act, right? As well as a salvific one. And so you should walk out of there knowing more. There's a reason why we get together and read books. Sin and Satan have darkened and imprisoned our intellects. Plato's allegory of the cave is truer in ways than he could ever imagine. If Christ had come in his full glory, that is in the incarnation, it would have been like whisking away someone who had lived in darkness all their life and throwing them out into the blazing light of the midday sun. Right? It would have overwhelmed and destroyed us. If you read, uh, there's a great C.S. Lewis uh, book called The Great Divorce, where a man's experience of heaven at the first time, every blade of grass cuts into his feet, the, the, the water is so cold and glassy, right? It's too really real for him, right? And so it overwhelms him. The incarnation then, Christ disguising himself, imitating one of us, is a mercy that accustoms our eyes to slowly becoming illuminated from darkness to that pure, radiant, and eternal light. In our baptism, we take on the, uh, and assume with Christ the roles of priest, prophet, and king. But the role of teacher has existed from the very beginning in human nature as part of its image and likeness of God. And I think that's like, when I was sitting here writing this talk, it was the thing, that sentence was the one I was most excited to share with you. right? That priest, prophet, and king, those are additions that we get in baptism, and they're really great, and they're really awesome. But from the very beginning, when God created you in his image and likeness, he made you both teacher and student. That's really beautiful, especially for those of you who are going on to become teachers yourselves, right? Your job is to be fully human. That's it. You get to wake up every day and be the most real person that you can possibly be from the initial creation of God in your, in your soul. As with all things, when Christ became teacher, rabbi, he lived it to its perfection. 
but it is a calling we all share. The question I presented to you tonight is not whether or not you are called to be a teacher. Every human being shares this as part of our very nature. The question remains, will you learn from and imitate the divine teacher? That's what I have to say.